Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Joining me on today's show is Eddie Badrina. He's a CEO of Eden Green Technology, an agri-tech company which is changing the way people grow food and people. He was previously the president and founder of BuzzShift, a digital strategy agency. But before we get a chance to speak with Eddie, you got it. It's the Leadership Hacking News. With the great resignation still looming, employee engagement is key for any successful organisation. So employee engagement is based on trust, integrity, two-way communication, commitment between the organization and its team members. And you will know as I, great engagement leads to increased productivity, performance, well-being, and can be measured in a number of different ways. And organizations have taken to a number of different methodologies to measure employee engagement. As a leader and as an employee, what does employee engagement really mean? For me, it's about getting up in the morning thinking, great, I'm going to work. I'm going to make a difference and I'm going to make a change. Employee engagement is about understanding individually what that means for each person that works with you and be really clear and sighted and energised where that fits into the whole organisation and aligning it to its purpose and objectives. And alignment to that core purpose and objectives is really important in fulfilling the organisation's longer term goals and purpose and objectives too. It's about being inclusive, fully inclusive and included as a team member, with clear goals, trusted and empowered, receiving regular and constructive feedback and feed forward, supported in your development and innovation and opportunity. So as leaders, how aware and how engaged are you in unlocking your employee engagement? Are you regularly and restlessly always looking to draw out deeper commitment from your team, finding new ways of working, drawing on their experiences and their backgrounds for innovative ideas? Are you helping them make parallels to the organization's purpose by connecting the dots to their own purpose and experiences? And it's sometimes helpful to think of employee engagement about what it's not. Employee engagement cannot be achieved by a mechanistic approach which tries to extract discretionary effort by manipulating employees and commitments and their emotions. It's not about the number you get once a quarter, once every six months, on a scorecard, around a load of measures. And it's not something that you tactically do. Our employees are hardwired to spot that kind of behaviour and when they do spot it, such attempts will fall quickly and become vain and create cynical and disillusioned behaviour across your workforce. So the leadership hack here Allow employee engagement to be a behaviour, not something you do. Provide the opportunity for development, inclusion and innovation. Allied with super leadership behaviours, your teams will be engaged. That's been Leadership Hacking News. Please get in touch with us if you want us to feature anything on our show. Our special guest on today's show is Eddie Badrina. He's a successful entrepreneur and now the CEO of Eden Green Technology a leading vertical farming business and agri-tech company. Eddie, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Hey, thanks so much. Happy to be here. We're delighted you're here, and I'm really intrigued to get underneath how the business is growing and in more ways than one, excuse the pun, (laughs) but also would love to find out a little bit about the background of our guests before we get into that. So perhaps you can tell us where it all started for you. So uh, I was uh, I was born here in the states to Filipino immigrants, and so I think that's important uh, to note because I think it really developed my uh, work ethic. Uh, just having to uh, be, you know, start my my parents started from scratch here in the United States. So 
Uh, I, I had a very, very high work ethic, uh, a resourcefulness, and uh, just this sense that um, that there was no uh, there was no safety net, if you will, uh, that others had to rely on. So, right. uh, I, I uh, and I tell that to entrepreneurs uh, and folks that you know just ask me like, where does the drive come from? And I tell them that you know the the risk to jumping out on your own or the risk to do something big here in the United States is actually not that risky at all. If you think about, you know, uh, what's the worst that can happen now? And I'll ask folks who are jumping out on their own or starting up businesses, what's the worst ha- that can happen? And they say, well, you know, I'd lose my house. Um, I would have to go back. I'd probably have to move in with my parents, right? You think about that, like, oh man, that sounds uh, devastating. I said, well, stop there because uh, most of the world already does that. It's just their normality, right? Right. Uh, and so when you can put it in that context of most, and, and I have family in the Philippines that there's four generations under one roof. And when you look at it like that, then you understand the safety net that, uh, or the, the risk that we have and the safety net that we have is actually uh, normal in everyday life for everyone else in the world. So uh, it, it puts that, it puts the, the element of risk into context. And so it just gives me confidence, like, Hey, what's the worst that can happen. Right. Um, so that's important to note, just my background of how I grew up. Uh, and then, you know, uh, spent a couple of years in DC. I got my, uh, undergrad and master's and then went up to Washington, DC. I was an analyst at the state department for about four years, both pre and post nine 11. Uh, so really got to, uh, experience what it was like to work. Uh, I didn't know it, but it was in the middle of right in the middle of history and work under extreme pressure on some really high profile uh, subjects when I was, you know, at the old age of 24. Um, So that really uh, helped me cut my teeth on what it means to work under pressure. Uh, I think a lot of folks think they're under pressure, but, but contextually it's not that much pressure uh, compared to, compared to um, what other folks uh, around the world are doing in, in uh, industries uh, and in topics that, you know, uh, that are just uh, uh, one, I think all consuming from a world point of view, but also to the stakes are just so much higher. Very similar to the whole principle, isn't it? That you talked around with regards to risk. Yes. People's context and perspectives are sometimes skewed by comfort, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's also an important thing to do from a leadership perspective is to always gain more context about the world that we're living in um, and look at other people doing other uh, remarkable, um, you know, things in, in high pressure situations, because it does give you context for the work that you're doing. Uh, and it, and it gives, you know, in some, a lot of senses, it gives you a little bit of relief, like, okay, this isn't, uh, this isn't world crushing what I'm doing here. Um, I, I can, I can go, I can work a full day and go home at night and sleep well, uh, knowing that I gave it my all for the day and then wake up tomorrow and start all over again. And, and nothing's going to fall apart if I, if I don't get that last email done. Right. Right. So, uh, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of benefits to having that context. So, uh, you know, worked, uh, again, four years in state department, then actually got to work at the white house, I was President Bush's Asian American spokesman uh, for about two years, and that was a really, really wonderful uh, time uh, uh, in my career. Uh, I couldn't have imagined doing that, uh, and I was 28 at the time, uh, so I couldn't have imagined that uh, in my wildest dreams uh, coming out of college. Uh, And I think that really showed me, those six years in D.C. from a leadership perspective really showed me uh, instances of great leadership and instances of bad leadership. Uh, and because of all the pressure that was in there working at that, the highest levels of government, uh, people it's a, your uh, strengths and your weaknesses are very amplified in that setting. Uh, so I, I got to see some, some leaders that because of the pressure just came out, uh, it, to me, at least in my eyes came out golden, uh, and, and really my, my respect raised for folks like, um, Colin Powell, who I was able to work under for a bit, Condoleezza Rice, uh, and then, and then both, both presidents, uh, Bush's, um, senior and W, uh, the, the things that I learned, uh, just viewing them from a, from a, a very near point of view, uh, were 
I think have shaped my leadership uh, acumen uh, up until this point, for sure. And it's interesting because most people can only ever really see the exterior perspective of how they operate. And those of you who have the opportunity to work very closely get to see a different dynamic, I suspect. Uh, we do. We do. I think uh, for the good leaders, uh, it's very cliche. And, and again, you can usually only read this in books or hear it on interviews, but the great leaders uh, are separated from the good leaders in that they always remember, remember the personal side of things. They look at the people around them, the team around them, and they remember that they're humans and that they have uh, lives. They've got families. Uh, they've got their own things that they're going through on a very personal level. Uh, and they take that into context when they're making decisions. Uh, those, those great leaders are ones that ask about how your family's doing. And they really want to, they, they want to know how your family's doing because it helps them uh, as they interact with you and it helps them uh, coach you and mentor you. And that's what great leaders do. Right. Um, so I, I think that was a, probably the key takeaway uh, from, uh, from my time there noticing what made uh, great leaders different from just good leaders. It was that, that personal attention uh, to the humanity of the folks working around them. And I remember from the last time that you and I met, that's still really core for your leadership style today, isn't it? That's something you carried forward and there's still a real core tenet of how you do things. Yeah, I, 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 I do. I do. I really try to, to do that and not just do that on a personal level. I try to do that honestly on a, um, on a company level. And it, it's, it's a part of how I've built my companies is to make sure I'm as much as I can advocating for the person um, I, I had a, I had a friend uh, actually was on a panel, uh, last, a uh, couple of weeks ago and they just, they asked, Hey, how, uh, I, I follow this creed of, uh, of redemptive framework for building companies. And it's, it's where, where leaders eat last, uh, leaders are sacrificial. It's where, uh, employees are not just treated fairly, they're treated generously. Uh, and it's where. Uh, culture and society around the company are not just advanced, uh, but they're actually redeemed and restored. And and I had a, a, a you know an audience member ask, "Hey, how how practically uh, do you apply some of that redemptive framework?" And I said, "Well, when it comes to employees, treating them fairly uh, is giving them you know, and this is a real practical application. Treating them fairly is looking around at the market and saying, okay." Uh, what is, um, what does maternity leave look like? Uh, you know, maybe it's eight weeks, maybe it's, you know, even 12 weeks. Okay. So how do you treat that generously, right? How do you think about that generously and not just treat them fairly in relation to the rest of the marketplace? Well, generously would be saying, okay, uh, I know personally, uh, that I've got three kids and that my wife, uh, was able to bond with them, you know, for, for, you know, uh, uh, three months uh, was really the minimum time. Uh, and, and she could have gone back to work, but man, if she had only just had that extra two weeks, uh, it really made a difference. And I don't know what that three month mark is, but it just is. And so to, to treat employees generously, th then my response is, well, gosh, what would it cost the company to give uh, four months of maternity leave? right? Is it really all that much? Is it, is it the difference between 12 and 16 weeks really all that much? And the answer is it is, but it isn't right. Can, can we, can we do that? And can that scale? And it's also investment, isn't it? Uh, it absolutely is an investment. It's an investment in people. That's what we do. We, we give people 16 weeks of maternity leave. Uh, and then we think broader, like, okay, so, uh, we, I, I value, uh, adoption, uh, and, uh, I value my, my friends that, that do foster, foster care. Okay. So can we provide, uh, uh, adoption same as, uh, pregnancy, right? Can we give 16 weeks, uh, to, uh, for leave for adoption? Can we, can we give an amount of time for foster care? Um, can we give paternity leave that's more generous, right? Th there's just practical things that I don't think a lot of folks um, you know, care to think about and expand just a little bit that make a world of difference uh, to the employee, a world of difference to my teammates. Uh, and so that practically is how 
I take the personal care of my employees to uh, a corporate level. And does it, does it, you know, uh, affect margins and operating, operating margins? Yeah, it does. Uh, but is it totally defensible, uh, to, uh, you know, the world outside, whether it be investors or uh, capital partners? Absolutely. And also I remember in the conversation you and I had last, that was a real key pivotal moment for you when you once sold both shift, the successful marketing agency that you created and founded, but then bought it back for the, for the same reasons. Yes. And that's a, you know, that's a really remarkable chapter in my life of taking a, taking a company from scratch, bootstrapping it uh, with my business partner, uh, and then uh, getting it up to the size that we were able to sell it. Uh, it's about six years later. So we started it in 2010 and then sold it in 2016. Uh, and when we sold it, I think everyone was on the same page, the acquiring company and us about vision and mission. But uh, I, I think really quickly, as with a lot of M&As, actually the vast majority of M&As, I think th the visions just get sidelined by practical realities. And so we had one uh, one party, uh, I, I would say, that was focused on uh, using the the agency as, as biz dev and the other party, including us, we're, we're focused on seeing it as a business unit, a profitable business unit. And so when those two diverged uh, at a point in time, I, I think everyone looked around and said, man, this is not working the way uh, we intended it to. And it maybe would be better if you just, guys just uh, bought the company back. And so we did. Um, and you know, I'll just say we, uh, we sold high and bought low. So that was really good. Uh, but, the, but the main reason that we bought it back was uh, because we saw our team just kind of falling apart and really going through some um, painful uh, just uh, merger type uh, scenarios. And I think on both ends, you're just like, man, this is not the best for the teammates that are in here. And uh, would it be better to uh, go our separate ways and to rebuild uh, these business units? And so that's what we did. And, and, you know, really, uh, that that was the driving force for me was the relationships and those those people in there that I just didn't want to leave high and dry. And then two years later, we were able to sell it again, actually for a second time. And uh, and I told my team on the last the last day, uh, my the CEO, who's my business partner, stayed on, and I uh, I left. Um, uh, actually, I had been gone. I had uh, taken taken a step back to run Eden Green, but uh, on the last day. Uh, just as an owner, uh, I was able to talk to the staff and I just said, Hey, here's the reason that I feel confident about uh, the sale. The second time is that uh, the whole time that I've been running bus shift for the last, you know, uh, call it 10 years or been an owner for 10 years. The, the point of it was to be a good steward of uh, that, which uh, that, which God had given to me. It wasn't really my company uh, to begin with. Uh, I was just a, uh, I was just tasked to be a good steward of it. And when I could find someone who could steward it as well or better than I could, then uh, it, it made sense for me to let that go. And so I just told them, I think, you know, this acquiring company uh, who is fantastic, by the way, uh, that they can be a better steward it than I can. And so that that's why I'm selling my, uh, my portion of the company. And, uh, and I, you know, I think that's, um, I think it was well received uh, because one, it was authentic. It was actually true. And two, uh, because they knew my stance was consistent with what, with what I was saying at the very end. Uh, I think everyone knew from the very beginning that, man, I just wanted to uh, grow the company, but, uh, but do it in such a way that uh, my identity is not tied up in it. And more importantly, uh, do it in such a way that they can thrive. Those employees and those teammates can thrive uh, because it's growing. And therefore, it becomes a sustainable business that you can confidently leave behind in good order, knowing that that's going to continue in that spirit too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And they've done a fantastic job uh, of of stewarding it and and helping it grow. And you're now on a new journey with Eden Green. In Eden Green Technology, for those that aren't familiar, are leading the way really of this whole kind of farming ecosystem that you've managed to create. Tell us a little bit about the journey so far. Absolutely. So uh, two years ago, uh, I became CEO of Eden Green, and uh, it is a it is a 
we'll call it greenhouses infrastructure, but it's a vertical farming uh, inside of a greenhouse, which is remarkable in and of itself. Uh, that and it's a platform that allows uh, us to grow really efficient, uh, efficiently, um, and really profitably a, a large quantity of greens uh, that uh, is is safe. It's season agnostic, uh, and it's really quite accessible to uh, to the consumer. And 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 we're able to do that because of uh, to my COO and CTO who invented the technology back in 2011. And they have a remarkable personal story as well uh, that that was really the genesis of Eating Green. And that was, uh, they were handing out, uh, they were engineers uh, and they were handing out food and actually candy in, in South Africa where they uh, were born and raised. And uh, a kid came up and stuffed his pockets, five-year-old uh, boy came up and stuffed his pockets. And they uh, they asked like, hey, what? why, uh, why is he stuffing his pockets? Like there's enough food to go around. And, uh, the response was that, well, it's, it's actually for his three-year-old sister at home. It's not his day to eat. It's hers. And so he's bringing the candy back to her. And for them that really struck a chord. And, and both of them said, man, this is, this is not right. Like we've got to find a way, uh, to fix this problem. And, you know, kudos to them. They were engineers, construction engineers, and they just turned their minds. Both of them turned their minds to figuring out a way to grow greens really efficiently in uh, an economic and an environmental uh, scenario that is South Africa. And so it was very resourceful. Uh, they, they invented it out of their garage actually, and it was re very resourceful. And after about six or seven years, they took it to the United States for uh, expansion of capital and commercialization. So, uh, probably, you know, a couple of years after they took it over, took it here to the States is when I came on board as CEO and I was just tasked with, um, providing vision. Uh, the mission remained the same, which was to change the way that we're farming food and change the way that we're feeding people, but the vision of what it could become and then taking it to market, uh, and providing product market fit and taking it to market was something I was tasked with. So, uh, I came on four months before the pandemic hit. <laughs> so mm. that was a uh, exactly. Yeah. Timing's everything, isn't it? Yeah. Timing's everything. Right. And so uh, a lot of, a lot of teams uh, and organizations uh, have, have suffered because of the pandemic. And I think because of the uh, flexibility and the adaptability and the grit of our team, uh, we were able to not just survive it, but really thrive in it. Uh, and, and it, so, you know, the pandemic hit and, uh, and we realized, man, uh, while capital is dry, uh, drying up for now, we can really focus on what we do best, which is the technology. Can we use this time? Uh, and obviously, uh, uh, with patient investors, can we use this time to up our yields, uh, per plant spot, which is kind of the going metric in our industry It's how much can you, how much produce can you yield in a year from a square foot? Uh, so can we use our, uh, that time to, uh, work on our tech, work on our operations, uh, to get that yield per square foot to a point where it was not just competitive with organic, but it was actually competitive with conventional produce and we're just about there. Uh, and so that's really exciting for us. Uh, and, and, you know, I think being able to focus on someone that once asked me like, Hey, what's the best piece of business advice you learned? And, and really it's, uh, the biggest competition that you have is who you were yesterday. And so I just, I, I tasked my team to say, Hey, every day, I just want us to get better than we were yesterday. Whether yeah. that's, you know, whether that's the yield going up 0.1, you know, 0.1 pounds, um, or uh, operational efficiency going from a 96% uh, cleanliness rate as rated by um, you know, third parties to a 97%, or from sales and marketing, let's go from uh, 24 leads a month to 25 leads a month, right? Whatever that is, if we can just be better than we were yesterday, uh, it really sets the tone uh, for a company even in the pandemic, uh, where we, we're looking 
for positive improvement day to day. And I think as you, as we added that up over, you know, the past two years, I think what that's resulted in is uh, the team is very confident about our product. We're very confident, uh, confident about the numbers and the quantitative data uh, that we're putting out to back up what we're saying. And more importantly, we're very confident uh, about the team itself uh, because we're all on the same page and we're all working towards incremental improvement. Um, so yeah. that's what the pandemic did for us. And, you know, again, like my, I would be nothing without my team. I just had a good team uh, that responded to the call uh, of, uh, of self-competition every day. And, uh, and I, I think it's, it's proven to be, uh, just a winning recipe, uh, for, our, for, uh, for eating green. One of the other things I loved about the mission of eating green is it's not just around sustainability from a produce perspective, as well as it's great eco centricity that comes with it, but also the sustainability about the communities that you're in. So I know one of the core tenets you have is making sure that if you're going to build a business or a location, you do so by employing the neighbors. Tell us a little bit about that, how that's disrupting the marketplace you're in. Yeah. You know, uh, from a broad point of view, the parameters that you set on a business uh, are, are really the, the values that you instill in the business. And so if you say, hey, uh, we're going to try to make this as profitable as possible, that takes a business to its logical end. And that logical end is just eking out every bit of margin that you can out of the business. Uh, I'm not going to say whether that's a good or bad thing uh, or healthy or unhealthy, but I'm going to say that that's not where we're at. Uh, we really try to, one of the parameters that we put in is uh, we want to employ as many people as we can while maintaining a good margin, positive uh, economic margin, because it, if a business is not profitable, it's not a business, it's a hobby, right? So, um, that's one of the parameters that we put in and it is really a core value of saying, Hey, how can we care for the community around us? Well, uh, in practical terms, what that means is, Hey, we've got to make the rest of our operations so efficient. The rest of our greenhouses so efficient that we don't have to rely on robotics. Um, we definitely use AI, uh, to assist our growing methods, our nutrient mixes, all the way that we handle air and water and the environments uh, inside the greenhouse. But when it comes to planting and, and monitoring and harvesting, uh, we, we love the fact that human hands are touching that uh, and are monitoring it and are looking at it. It's really important to us because I, I think we, don't, we never want to take the humanity out of feeding other people. Right. So because we have that core value, and I'll even call it a parameter in place, uh, then we had to work, if that's a, just a part of our margin is up to 30 full-time people uh, in one of our greenhouses, then what do we have to do on a technolo technological and operational end to make sure that that fits in healthy uh, business margins? And so that's what we did. Yeah. Um, and so now, you know, we're, we're proud to say, Hey, we actually want to be in the urban areas. We want to be in and around the communities that we're feeding. Uh, one, because it's just smart business, uh, the, the, the land, the geography of, uh, underdeveloped, uh, and under-resourced economic areas, uh, are the best and the cheapest places to put these greenhouses. But then also once you put them in there, we have the ability to hire our neighbors. And so our neighbors can work in these greenhouses. They can change the way that, uh, they're no longer migrant workers. It's full time with benefits, uh, living days wage for these workers in these greenhouses. Uh, so they're able to provide for their families consistently, uh, they're able to partake of uh, the harvests that are coming out of them. So they're really changing uh, their dietary and health lifestyle, not just for them, but their families. Uh, and then finally, they're in an industry that's on the cutting. It's one of the top 10 industries of, you know, technological growth for the next, you know, 10 to 20 years. And these folks are right at the at the base of it. And it's not a dead end job for them. Yeah. Uh, it's actually, a, you know, a, a career platform. So because of, because of that core value, 
all of those benefits can result, but it's only when you have that core value and you stick to it that you have to find ways to make you know the company profitable while sticking to that core value. And that's super, super important yeah. to me. And sustainability is just that one thing that keeps echoing in my mind as I'm listening to you speak, Eddie, around. It's not just about the sustainability of the produce, but the whole ecosystem of that organization and how it fuels itself by getting that core value right. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, when we talk about sustainability, we talk about economic and environmental sustainability. Uh, because if it's not economically sustainable, then it, it's just not going to, th there's no uh, scalability and there's no long-term, uh, there's no longevity to the business. Uh, so uh, we, we just have, we're very practical about it, uh, about finding ways uh, to be economically sustainable, but while also adhering to the environmental values that we've set. And sustainability has got a lot of press of late with COP26 happening not so long ago with lots of focus on the environment that we're in and what's happening with global warming or not as a case may be around the world. And sustainability is quite cliche at the moment. You hear lots of leaders diving into and using the word sustainability in some senses and having now clear ESG measures in their business, etc. What does sustainability mean to you personally when you hear that as a business leader? It's mm, a great question. I think for me, sustainability is, you know, if you, if you break down, uh, I took Latin as a kid. Uh, so uh, if you break down the word sustain, it really means to maintain a consistent level of um, what, you know, uh, wherever you're at to, to sustain energy for a period of time or to sustain success for a period of time, uh, uh, you know, really means to, to provide uh, for long-term presence. And so when I think about sustainability uh, for eating green, sustainability for the environment is how can we endure? How can we thrive for a long term without draining and exploiting the resources around us. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so on an environmental level, how do we run a company uh, so that the operationally we're not exploiting the environment around us, but we're actually adding to it. We're additive to it. Uh, and then from a company level, how do we, continue to exist? How do we grow without exploiting the community and society around us? I think in, in, in very basic terms, that's what sustainability means to me. Good answer. I love it. So one of the things that I'm keen to explore with you is this whole notion of how you keep innovating in a world that's already innovating at light speed. Where do you kind of, mm. where do you go for that inspiration or how does that come about? I think it, I think it just comes about from that thing that I mentioned at the very beginning, which is how do I get better every day? Right. And innovation, uh, I think for me comes from when I start to sort of level out or the incremental gains in my own personal life are starting to become smaller and smaller. I just take a step back and, and I've, I've afforded myself to take a step back and say, okay, how do I do things differently? If I had to scrap all this, I'm not saying I would, but if I had to scrap all of this, all of the structure and the parameters in my life, how would I do things differently uh, in order to, um, you know, achieve a, a better life? And I, and I really think, you know, that that's where my personally, my innovation comes from, but it, then it just goes to goals, right? Before I can say, you know, get a better life will define better. Right. So, uh, I, I think from a, from a corporate, but then also from a personal level, yeah. you really have to know what you want. And I tell entrepreneurs that all the time, uh, and, and folks who want to be entrepreneurs, but also just leaders in general, in order to be a great leader, you have to know what you want. And it's actually a part of my, my personal story moving from buzz shift to eating green is, um, one of the things that I had to do, uh, I was, I was, bus shift was going really well. Uh, it was running quite well, so much so that, you know, I had, I had a bit of time on my hands. Uh, 
I, I'm not a maintainer. Uh, I'm a, I'm a builder. I'm a creator. And I knew that as much about myself uh, that I, I just became really impatient. I became, you know, honestly a little bit unhappy uh, because uh, because I was just maintaining and incrementally growing this business, which was great. I think um, from the outside looking in, I, I had it all, but from the inside, uh, I just, I just wasn't, I wasn't happy. Uh, and so the first thing I had to do was I had to define, and, and this required a lot of what I call heart work, uh, not hard work. It is hard work, but it's heart work. Um, and in this heart work, I really had to define what I wanted. That took a lot longer than I thought it would. What was the reason it took so long? Uh, I, I think as a type A in, in the Enneagram, I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram. I'm a type three, uh, which is an achiever. Uh, and, and most of the folks who are really high up in business are, are, are achievers, uh, the Enneagram achiever uh, status, or, or they may be what's called known as a challenger. But either one of those, uh, we see a goal and we get it. We see a task, we hit it, and we just go on to the next one and the next one and the next one. And we get caught up in sort of this task and performance. And at least for me personally, because when I just do that and I feel uh, I have this temporary like feeling or dopamine hit of success, I, I sort of lose sight. I can lose sight if I'm not careful of what I'm really about and what I want. Um, and from a day to day, the level, I want to hit those goals, but from a year to year or a legacy type level, that just takes more thought work. Right. Uh, and you have to get off that cycle of success after success after success and really take a step back and say, okay, what is this success about? I'm climbing this ladder, but is it, but is it leaned up against the wrong wall? Right. So that's, I think that's why it took so long is because I was just used to getting the daily and weekly successes. Uh, and, and that, that just, I, I, I lost a little bit of vision, my own personal vision because of that. So, you know, back to the defining what I want, uh, after about nine months, uh, maybe even closer to a year, three, three things emerged, you know, out of that time. Um, one is, um, I had, I had to define very clearly and succinctly and articulate what I wanted uh, to others, but more importantly to myself. Right. Um, and, and those, those three things were, I wanted to run a hardware software business. I had been there and done that, gotten the M and a t-shirt for professional services. Yeah. Two, I wanted to um, have an exponential impact on my level of effort. So for every one unit of effort that I put out, I wanted to see it a 10 to 20 X return uh, in community and culture around me. And then three is I wanted to run a redemptive type organization. So the fact that I'm able to articulate to you those three things so clearly took a lot of work, but I was able to do that. Once I was able to articulate those three things, then the second thing I did was uh, I passed it before friends and colleagues um, and family and just said, Hey, uh, tell me if this is coming from a healthy place or tell me if this is coming from uh, what the Bible calls a selfish ambition and vain conceit. Often also known as ego. As ego. Right. Yes. Um, great book uh, by a guy named Ryan Holiday. Uh, and he studies the Stoics, but it, it talks about uh, the, the ego is the enemy, but uh, so two, I had to, you know, run it through a, a filter of friends and family who were going to be brutally honest with me. And that's another thing that most entrepreneurs don't have uh, besides that they can't articulate clearly what they want. And then two, they don't have the courage to, or the wherewithal, or even the friends around them to say, Hey, is this a healthy thing for me? Um, and then for friends to be honest enough with them and say, yeah, it's healthy or no, you are being very, very arrogant and egotistical. You should not pursue that. Uh, and then, so I, you know, articulated it, passed it to friends and family. And then the third piece that I did, uh, was I let it go. And, um, I knew that, uh, if that was supposed to happen, uh, and my friends and family approved it, approved of it, um, I just had to, uh, I had to let go of striving so hard for it 
And uh, I worked towards it, but uh, I also wanted to be diligent and excellent in my work at BuzzShift uh, and to the team there. And so um, I, I just had to had to release that and uh, and be be mindful and hopeful and uh, that it would come back to me if that was what was supposed to happen. And indeed, it did. And it's often the case, isn't it, when you you strive so hard for something, you don't necessarily see it or experience it, but when you do let go you are open to natural occurring coincidences, opportunity, higher spirit, call it what you will, yeah. but that then finds you in another way, right? Some people call it serendipity. Mm -hmm. um, I call it providence, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, that was, that was the, probably the biggest thing of it all. I was just talking to my wife the other day about uh, what I've been learning over the past couple of years. And I think the loss of control has been <laughs> the biggest yeah. learning uh, for, for me you know, the pandemic obviously heightened it, uh, but, but really the, the core issue is one that everyone, uh, goes through at some point in their life of you realize even over your own body, you don't have that much control. That's very true. Right. Yeah. P pandemic prime example, right. You can mask up or you can take the vaccine as much as you can, but the reality is you might still get sick and that's totally out of your control. And it's so frustrating for people. We see it right now. Um, it's so frustrating for people who don't accept that they can't control everything. Yeah. And that comes out in terms of the way it manifests. Mostly it manifests itself in terms of fear. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and sort of a protective nature, but when you can understand and accept for me, especially when I can understand and accept that I don't have control, it really frees me up. I don't even have control over, like I said, over that, which I articulated and was able to, you know, confirm with my friends and family, like, this is a really good thing that, that that's on your heart and you need to go after it. Even if I, as I go after it, I realize I don't have a lot of control over, uh, over the external factors. Very true. Wise words. I'm going to turn the tables a little bit now, Eddie. Yeah. And we're going to flip the, the conversation a little bit to focus on taking all of your learnings, which are in abundance. And we've had bucket loads of hacks already, but I'm going to try and distill them down as best we can to your top three leadership hacks, mm. what would they be? Um, man, I, I think you would go back to top leadership hack one, know what you want, know yourself, right? That takes a lot of work. It's not a hack in the sense that you can get to it quickly, but knowing yourself and being brutally honest with yourself about your strengths and your weaknesses uh, is, uh, is, is number one, because when you know that, uh, you'll immediately hire for your weaknesses <laughs> and yeah, right. And that's a good yeah. goal to have. Um, you know, the, the biggest, the biggest jump for a lot of uh, leaders and entrepreneurs is hiring that next person, hiring the first person in your company, because that's a very, uh, it's a very real equation of I'm going to take profits out of my own pocket as a one man band and I'm going to give some of it to someone to shore up my weaknesses. That's a crazy equation, but the equation actually yeah. works out in your favor if you're if you're if you're willing to to do it. Um, I would say this: the second big hack is have a circle of advisors who can be honest with you. Um, a lot of leaders have uh, yes men around them, and they'll just say yes to whatever. Is this a good idea? Oh yeah, sure it is. Go. I find that person that you can say, Hey, is this a good idea? And they will say, no, that is a horrible idea. <laughs> you're, you're off your rocker, yeah. right? Or yeah, that is not healthy for you. Um, I try to, um, for leaders, uh, and just for people in general, I try to get people away from saying right and wrong. And I get people more into the mindset of healthy versus unhealthy. Uh, and, and that, that changes nice. your posture towards uh, letting other people in. Because if you can let other people in and say, hey, is this right or wrong? It's sort of, it can be offensive to you. But if you can say, hey, is this healthy for me? Or is this unhealthy for me? One that connotes that they, they know a level of health about yourself. Uh, and two, that they're able to say it in such a way that is for your benefit. Yeah, that's not, that's not really healthy for you. I'd probably go in a different direction. Um, and that. then, uh, yeah, I'd say those are the top two and then read a lot, read a ton. What would be your hack number three? Uh, read, read all the time. Yeah. 
um, and, 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 uh, and allow yourself, uh, the, uh, the time and the space to read. So I actually have a blog post on my own personal, uh, blog. I don't have many blog posts on there, uh, but I have a blog post, uh, on there just on books and on how I read, when I read what I read. And, uh, and that for a number of, uh, a number of folks have gotten back to me and said, man, that was a really, really useful set of uh, a really, really useful framework. Uh, to go by in terms of reading. Next part of the show, we call Hack to Attack. So this is typically where something hasn't worked out as planned, and yet you've managed to use it as a force of good. What would be your Hack to Attack? I think the Hack to Attack has actually been uh, has actually been the, the reading piece. Uh, I think the more that uh, it didn't... I used to, I used to be read a lot of social and then thought I was reading the right types of social media or the right types of blog posts. And I was just doing it really inefficiently. Uh, and I think over the course of a number of years, I've really been able to dial in for me, at least what has been a, a good intake of information, why I take the information in and then, uh, and then really, you know, the modes of the modes of intake and it's helped me to focus more. Uh, and it's, it's helped me to, uh, to be more mindful and thoughtful about how I lead. Awesome. And it's an interesting notion, actually, because many top execs that I liaise with, work with, coach, one of the core foundations is often just consume knowledge, as much knowledge as you can, because knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, yeah, but it's also the type of knowledge, right? Right. Long form books are the result of long form thinking. Yeah. And as a leader, that's what you're tasked to do. You're tasked to think critically. People don't get paid the big bucks or the mediocre bucks in my case um, to to just fire off emails because anyone can do right. that. The, the, the real, the, the good leaders, the great leaders are ones who have to think through five emails in a day, right? And think really, really critically before they hit send. And, uh, and that type of deep thinking, uh, is, is critical to good leadership. And you can't do that unless you're intaking deep knowledge and deep knowledge comes from books. Mm. Wise words. The last thing we want to do on the show, Eddie, is to give you a chance of time travel now. So you're going to be able to bump into you at 21 and give yourself some advice. What do you think it might be? Oh man. Um, I would tell my 21 year old self, keep your eye on the prize and the prize is relationships. Yeah. You know, I, I think I try to think with the end in mind as do most good leaders. And when you think about the end in mind, the end end for me is when I die and when I die and they're reading my obituary, they're reading the homily, you know, in the church, they're reading my, tomb, my tombstone, uh, I think it would be a total failure if they ever mentioned the words eating green or bus shift. Uh, that would be a failure in my life if, if the companies actually came up in my obituary. Uh, and it's because that that's just, man, what a, what a waste. Uh, if, if your corporate success is the the thing that people remember about you, what I want them to remember is, man, he, he loved people. Well, he loved his wife. Well, he loved his kids. Well, uh, he loved his friends. Well, he was a good friend and honest and a faithful friend. Um, he, he loved others, even folks that he didn't know. He was, uh, generous. He was winsome. Uh, he spoke truth in love. Um, he was bold, right? Uh, he was adventurous. That's the stuff I want to remember, want people to remember me by. And more importantly, that's the legacy that I want to leave with my kids uh, and, and the folks around me. And so as you think about generational legacy, you think about uh, legacy at the end of your life. None of that involves my, the names of my businesses necessarily. Th those are just means to an end. Yeah. It all involves the relationships uh, that, that I pursued all along the way. So 
beginning and the end in mind, I would tell my 21 year old self to focus on the relationships. Great advice too. So Eddie, how can we make sure our listeners from all over the world are able to tap into your blog and the work you do and to find out a little bit more about eating green technology? Sure. So uh, eatinggreen.com is the best way to find out. We've got a treasure trove of information just about hydroponics and about what we do, about the industry, um, eatinggreen.com. And then on the socials, it's all eating green tech. Um, in terms of my personal, it's just badrina.com. It's my last name, uh, badrina.com. And, uh, and either one of those have uh, ways to get a hold of me if they really want to ask me questions. So. And we'll also make sure those links are in our show notes. So folk can head straight over once they finish listening to this. Absolutely. Eddie, thank you, my friend. It's been a great opportunity to talk to you and have you on the show. Uh, and I'm really excited to see the trajectory that Eden Green's on and uh, in the future. So congratulations and thank you for being on our community here at the Leadership Hacker Podcast. It's been my pleasure. My pleasure. It's been very, such a great way uh, to just be a, have a part of my day as me to talk to you uh, and to be able to share some of this. Thanks, Eddie. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.